This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hype. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Intrigue Scenarios. Haja George. Dime Crime. And Jaime Mausan's Alien Mummies. I'm trapped in a diabolical dilemma. The spirits are restless, as on Halloween night, and... Hold on, ma'am. Here in Sunset City, every night's Halloween. What's the hocus-pocus? Neighbors are vanishing, jewels are missing, and even the mayor's tangled in a web of witchcraft. Meow! Fear not, for the magical kitties of the Cat Eyes Detective Agency can handle any Halloween whodunit. But how, Detective? In Sunset City, secrets are as common as candy corn in October and run deeper than a witch's cauldron. Enter Magical Kitty Save the Day, the bewitching role-playing game for all ages. Its newest hometown source book, Kitty Noir, uncovers all the secrets lurking beneath the perfect facade of Sunset City. Kitty Noir? The spellbinding blend of classic film noir, spine-tingling mysteries, and eerie science fiction? That's right, and here's an extra Halloween treat. A full-size poster map of Sunset City, perfect for planning your spooktacular adventures. Get it now from Atlas Games! The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But those Doritos, were they actually Doritos? <laughs> Is Peter Frampton, are his eyes following you? Is he plotting behind our back, Robin? Has the gaming hut become an intrigue hut? A hut of intrigue? Surely not, except that it is a common adventure structure and therefore is treated of in your own, I hesitate to say magisterial, but shall we say definitive, adventure crucible chapbook available even now in PDF form from DriveThruRPG? Indeed, yes. So to recap, for those of you who are joining this series at, at its very end, <laughs> we've been looking at the different structures of different uh, scenarios and showing you how to how they work, what people like about them, which players might possibly not like certain scenarios, and how to sharpen each of them and make it better. And Ken, uh, you'll be able to absolutely follow along because as the lead designer for the current version of Vampire... Thank, uh, thank you goodness I can follow along. <laughs> yes, you are well acquainted with the primary game with which people intrigue and uh, and bite each other and intrigue over whether they're going to bite each other, who else is going to get bitten. But basically, I think one of the main appeals of the intrigue is that even more so than other games, the morally ambiguous anti-hero can come to the fore here. Mm -hmm. You can certainly play upstanding characters, maneuvering a bunch of other backstabbers in an attempt to make sure that they all uh, meet their comeuppances and that you get your power base altogether for uh, truth, uh, justice, and the uh, Shire way. But more likely, people are going to be enjoy engaging in some uh, backstabbing and lying and sneaking of their own. Yeah. And that is, I mean, in the same way that the sort of all the other types of campaign by and large 
are about getting our not particularly vicarious urge to violence out. This is our urge to do everything else antisocial, pretty much. Lie, cheat, backstab, sneak around. Vampire, of course, justifies it to the extent it has to justify anything by making you the best of a bad lot, often. Uh, you're morally ambiguous antiheroes in that you're vampires, but the other vampires are even meaner vampires. They're even worse than you. They eat way more babies than you. Whatever awful thing you think vampires do, these vampires do it more. And so for the sake of, you know, uh, your political position, if you're playing a political game, your family position, if you're playing a bloodline type game, whatever it is, you are uh, forced, uh, maybe even against your will, to be as sneaky and covert and conniving and backstabby as you possibly can, because no moral contract can be entered into with a fellow vampire. And so, therefore, you're you're sort of giving yourself permission in the same way that, oh, orcs are green and monsters and they have treasure, so we can just slaughter them and it doesn't matter morally. The same sort of appeal is for the proper intrigue game. And maybe that's why it's hasn't really caught on outside the sort of vampire context. I don't think that there's like, you know, you'd, you'd imagine there should be a big old game of being Medici's and sneaking around and stabbing people through an heiress, but that doesn't seem to happen an awful lot, Robin, or maybe right. it does. Well, since we're talking about premise acceptance and needing to get it from your entire group, mm-hmm. I think the reason people don't like games with negotiation in them is that many people don't like to ever give in right, or yeah. give concessions. They're bad at it or they um, uh, don't want to do it because they feel like they give in enough in the rest of their life. Right. Because this is a game that is is a heightened version of what a lot of people do in their regular <laughs> yeah. lives, right? If, you, if you're if you in a corporate environment or, uh, anything, or an academic environment, God forbid. Anything with a hierarchy, you already have this. So some people like the chance to do the dirty to vicarious imaginary versions of people they deal with in real life. And other people don't want to compromise, never want to give in, don't want to be involved in politics. And so you need to know whether your players are in the second category because they're going to really dislike an intrigue game, even if the people they're intriguing against are uh, nasty and deserve to be uh, backstabbed. Yeah. Now, do we want to unpack a little bit about how to make it as welcoming as possible to various types of players? Because a player who's in it for the brutality maybe more regular type player can be given great roles in an entry game. They're the, the thug, the Mr. Dark, the guy that shows up and, and, and gets it real. They're the vampire that took potence instead of obfuscate. Right. And that's one of the geniuses of vampire is that by giving you the various clans and the various power sets, you can play to the various types of player within a larger intrigue context, as long as the GM is able to make sure that some of the intrigue is set up by having, you know, beaten up the whole Cardinal's guard or snapped the neck of someone's treasured ghoul. And then that sets up a position of power from which you do the negotiation and the intriguing, right? Right. Because what you're doing is you're setting out a series of bargaining chips that can be gained by doing more typically adventure things mm-hmm. so that the person who doesn't enjoy a lot of talking as you suggest can go and cock somebody on, on the head and take them a hostage. And then you have a hostage to, to uh, negotiate the release of, or the person who likes sneaking around can get the secret document that they can use as a blackmail token. So yes, absolutely. Uh, as you sit down to sort of envision what an intrigue scenario will be, you should look at ways for people who are only moderately intriguing to get to do the things that they want to do. So that brings us to how to create a premise for an intrigue game. And that is, I think, the first step before the one we just talked about. And 
basically all you need to do is figure out what the power structure is and then how and why the group of player characters is going to interact with that. So the most obvious one is they come to a new town with an established structure that they want to enter and then find places for themselves in, which will mean displacing other people. Mm -hmm. Or they're already in the middle of a situation where they're part of a power structure and some other inciting incident happens to upset that structure. So, you know, the the king dies and there's a, a war for succession or the uh, high elf priest declares that uh, all of the existing monks are corrupt and that there's going to be a trial and that's going to obviously upset the monks and they're going to look for allies. So, and often that's about all you need. And unlike, for example, a mystery where you need to do a lot of structural stuff to figure out how the story all goes together. Another great thing about an intrigue is how player driven it is. Yeah. And so if you have a structure, you have an inciting incident, and then you say, so what do you do? Who do you talk to? That's often most of your adventure right there. Yeah. You just need to sort of come up with the rest of the factions and uh, you know, they're the sort of rule of three to seven is in play, you know, too many factions. They can't keep track of it Too few factions. It becomes Yojimbo, which is a great scenario, but is not intrigue really. And so you figure out the factions, you figure out ideally what each one, you know, wants from the other, what each one hates about the other, what each one might be able to hold over the other. And then the players can go around flipping those switches in the course of, you know, building their own power structure, or they're already one of the factions, as you say, and they've already got these relationships. And then you can do it collaboratively with the group and say, given the other factions in the city or in the court or wherever, you know, what do you think are these, are, are these fundamental levers that you've been raised in the court knowing? And then that lets the player sort of do the same sort of co-creation that they do in a more, a, a different sort of a world building situation elsewhere. Right. So look at, what they currently want from the player characters, uh, what they might want if the player characters got a better bargaining chip or what bargaining chip they're going to pursue to gain power over the player characters. Mm -hmm. And that's most of what you want to do. So the, as we've already mentioned, you can fit any other of the classic uh, adventure obstacles that we've talked about in previous uh, segments in this series into an intrigue scenario. But the core obstacle in intrigue is negotiation. Right. And that breaks down into a dilemma. The person wants something in exchange for their help or uh, for their lack of hostility, which I guess <laughs> is a, a, another version of help. It's like help. And so you work out what it is that they want and what, uh, when the a player character comes to them, what cost or risk or difficulty that they're going to impose on the group. And so that gives the players all sorts of choices, not only the emotional strategy they use, or I guess emotional tactic. So this, they could come in and attempt to intimidate or flatter or, you know, uh, seduce or pal around with, or, or just, you know, trade, you know, thing A for thing B straight up. Yeah. Just pure uh, dickering. And so they have the, the means by which they're making the approach and what it is that they're asking for and what it is that they're willing to give up in order to get that. And the consequences are also pretty clear. You can either win an ally and get what you want, or the negotiation can go sideways and you can continue to have an ambiguous relationship, right? You get what you want, but you've agreed to do something that's going to cost you too much or that you ultimately can't deliver. So that remains ambiguous. Or in the most extreme failure, you've got a new enemy or your previous enemy now has another advantage over you. Mm -hmm. So that gives you all sorts of different 
outcomes from any possible different negotiation obstacle. And the rooting interests are absolutely clear, just as in any other real negotiation uh, that you enter into. You want to get the uh, most benefit at the lowest cost, and that cost can be practical, you know, giving up fewer of your ducats or, you know, less use of your, uh, you know, having to not give up your magic item you really want, or the emotional cost of, you know, sucking up to someone you really despise or offending someone you really admire. Yeah. And it's that, that, that sense of, I, I guess what you really have to make sure is that the sense of joy from getting one over outweighs the uh, emotional sting of getting done dirt by an NPC, because of course players hate being done dirt by an NPC more than they hate almost anything except maybe waking up naked in prison. I guess that's the thing they hate most of all. <laughs> yes. Especially, well, they, they, it, you can double up and have that happen because they've been done dirt in an intrigue scene. They've been done dirt by, by an NPC. Yeah. You can, you can always make things worse. That's, you know, that's the lesson of horror games and the lesson of vampire, quite frankly. But the important thing is to, you know, uh, there's a reason that we look to the Renaissance and to vampires uh, for this is that you want the the highs to be sort of really brightly colored, operatic. You want to be able to feel them, taste them. They have to be sensual almost so that it gives you a, you know, a, you know, you can say the, the game is worth the, the stakes. The game is worth the candle. I want to play because I love having this sensation of a getting to do dirt to, to an NPC, but B the other rewards, the emotional rewards or the, or the, or the fictive rewards have to be as tasty as just smashing something with an ax, which as, as we all know is, you know, the, the, the steak and potatoes of, of role play games. Right. Then there's a question of the ending. How do you feel that you've concluded a scenario? And the answer may be, you don't really care that you've got an ongoing intrigue game and it plays out like a soap and, People are up and people are down, and there's never a point where you go, oh, I won at being a vampire. Right, yeah. It's just, I've, you know, we had another episode, and some of us got more powerful, and some of us got less powerful, and next week we'll come back at it. But if you do have a scenario uh, where you have a, a campaign ender or a one-shot, you want to look at what is the victory condition? What is it that the group is looking for? Uh, when will they be able to go, well, you know, I haven't... Uh, won forever, but I've won today. I've won this battle. So ask yourself uh, what it is that they're uh, looking for. What is the practical manifestation of it, right? Is it to win a seat on the council? Is it to uh, regain your ancestral lands? Is it to make sure the previous head of the monastery is uh, kicked out and brought to justice? Whatever that is, that will give you your uh, sense of an ending. And you can sort of work backward from there as to how many allies uh, they have to bring on board or enemies they have to thwart in order to finally incrementally reach that uh, big goal at the end. So typically the, the final scene will have as many of the characters on stage in some way as you can. Uh, so there's some sort of big event. So it could, you know, the coronation or, you know, all of your allies show up at the monastery or vampire Elysium. Exactly. And so you can have a sense of triumph and a sense that other uh, non-player characters have, have seen your triumph. And as we've already suggested, a fight may indeed, uh, there's lots of groups who aren't happy if their scenario doesn't end without a fight. Well, guess what? If all these intriguers are showing up at the end altogether and half of them are disappointed, uh, you can come up with all sorts of reasons why a, a fight might break out to... Uh, well, why you suddenly have to fade Routha versus Paul Moadib it, right? Exactly. And... Because this is about wanting something and trying to get it, 
and being thwarted and having allies and enemies, the emotional rooting interest is very clear throughout. And indeed, that's why for some people, they would rather, you know, control a dungeon and hit things or solve a mystery or engage in any of the other scenario structures that we've uh, talked about previously. Yeah, but, you know, it's one of those things. It's like onions. If you don't like onions, there's nothing you can do with onions. But if you love onions, you know, they can make anything great and you can make them an amazingly different and wonderful kinds of flavor and tastiness. And so intrigue is like that. If you, if you have a taste for intrigue, I urge you to think about as you know, we've talked about doing these as things as one shots, drop a little intrigue scenario into your regular scenario and just see if the other players uh, get into it. Say, you know, we promise we'll go back to stabbing, you know, uh, (laughs) next Tuesday, not a problem, but you know, try it and see, you may develop a taste and the players may uh, surprise themselves and you with their... Yeah, you can drop a little intrigue into an ongoing uh, game in any of the other styles. Right, absolutely. Um, I also want to quickly mention, while we're talking about one-shots, another key style of intrigue play, and that's one in which the players are not all working together as a team to support one objective, but are intriguing against one another. Yeah, PvP intrigue. Yes, which is often the one-shot game that I'll uh, run for the Polygrain crew and we meet up before Dragon Meet because uh, we have a group of people who all enjoy playing their characters and uh, have some latent aggressions they want to... <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> uh, ...sublimate. You must and, be thinking of that other game company. Yeah. So, uh, and, and that is one in which you create a zero-sum objective where, you know, only X number of people are going to be able to uh, win the thing and you give people reasons to be at odds with one another and then... Uh, as a GM, that's even more fun and less work because you just have to sort of play traffic cop while you create scenes that pit the different players against one another as their characters negotiate and become allies, ambiguous allies uh, or enemies. And that does avoid the biggest, I think, uh, dramatic problem with intrigue games is the scene of all NPCs talking to each other. That is just deadly dull to watch as a player. Uh, no matter how much you think you're following the action, this is the part where you, you know, fast forward through on, on the TV. So if the players are able to do the talking, that makes things more interesting. And depending on your group of players, you can even say for this big meet, only one of you can be the player representative, but I want you all to role play your enemies and act like your enemies would act. Uh, generally, players who like intrigue are capable of you know, firewalling and playing their foes, you know, actively and weaselily. So that's a way around that. But that's just sort of the the problem, like this fight is taking forever is the problem with most of these other ones. You know, this talk doesn't involve the players is a very bad one. And you and you want to keep an eye out for that. Yeah, I think that's a whole possibly other segment is because in whatever scenario structure, uh, having two NPCs talking to each other is deadly. And there's all sorts of different Uh, techniques uh, to deal with that. And since we've digressed and teased another topic at the end of this series, all about the Adventure uh, Crucible chalkbook available from uh, the Kraken through DriveThruRPG, it's time for us to close out this series and see what other completely different thing waits for us on the other side of this exciting commercial.
Belgrain Press celebrates its favorite season. The spooky season. With a terrifying offer insidiously designed to suck you into a world of role-playing horror. Go to the Belgrain Press online store. With trembling hands, type in the promo code SCARY23. And get 20% off on Trail of Cthulhu products. 20% off on Yellow King role-playing game products. 20% off on Esoterra's products. And you guessed it. 20% off on Fear Itself products. A deal this eldritch. This reality shattering. This disorienting. This pulse pounding. Can only intrude into our safe little existence while ghosts are ghosting and black cats are prowling. Specifically, until All Souls Day, November 1st. So that's promo code SCARY23. At the Pelgrane Press web store. For 20% off all its most chilling gumshoe horror games. Until November 1st. So hey everybody, uh, we are once more talking to someone else in Ken and or Robin talk to someone else and this time around the someone else is someone I've tried to get on the podcast many a time yet uh, he has the crazy excuse of I don't usually go to Gen Con but look he's here at Gen Con it's Ajit George ah, yeah. <laughs> off. yeah all right so you're a man who wears many hats, and we could have a different interview for each of your hats. But I thought that this is sort of a year when there's a, a victory lap, as it were, for uh, Journeys Through the Radiant uh, Citadel. Uh, it's up for our listeners, by the time they listen, will we'll have checked off on their checklist which, which of the various awards it's nominated for that it is uh, picked up. But for us, it is still a matter of considerable suspense. So I thought that we this would be a great opportunity for you know, an, take an acclaimed mega project with many moving parts and take people through the process of how it was put together. And I've heard different terms for your involvement, a, a mastermind, a shepherd, putter together. <laughs> but what is your official uh, title in the credits page? Yeah, I'm, um, I'm the project lead for, uh, the co-project lead with F. Wesley Snyder for, for Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel. So that's my official title. So how did you come, first of all, to be involved with this? What was your first inkling that you were going to go on this journey? No pun intended, but yeah, my first inkling was that I pitched it. But that's a good way. <laughs> During the pandemic, well, actually, to, to kind of rewind, I was working on Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft with Wesley Snyder and had a tremendously great time working on that. Uh, I was also gifted with the opportunity to work on a, an original theme domain uh, of dread uh, which was indian inspired and there was something incredibly moving and powerful to write for dnd which you know i grew up with first rpg uh, like many people and to create something new for it but also create something new for it that was uh, from my own um, ethnic heritage um, it, it just really resonated with me and i wanted to do more of that um, so I travel a lot for my full-time job, I'm overseas a lot, and normally I can't commit to like a long-term project. But the pandemic hit, and I wasn't going anywhere, and uh, I don't like to knit, so <laughs> I thought so maybe... Sour, your sourdough bread is yeah. mediocre. <laughs> exactly. So let's do a book with 15 authors. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This is the difference between Ajit George and most writers, people who know other writers. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I thought, well, this would be a good pandemic project. Uh, 
So I, um, I, I talked to Jeremy Crawford and Wes Snyder, and this was in June of uh, 2020, and pitched the idea. And in the very same call, both of them were overwhelmingly supportive, which, to be honest, blew my mind because, you know, I didn't think this is like the normal process. I know Watsi builds their own books internally, and then they bring in outsiders to work on them. They're very slow moving. So, yes. so what was the pitch? I wanted to create a, an original themed uh, book of, of worlds or settings inspired by black and brown writers and creators drawing from their own ethnic background or their own heritage. And that was the original idea, right? So I thought it was going to be more of a setting book. And that was where I was focused on. And they both loved the idea, but Jeremy in particular said, hey, the best way to understand a setting, um, a new setting, particularly that the players are not going to be used to, is to tell a story through it. Um, and that was very insightful and, and probably obvious in retrospect. Um, it's one thing to read something, but it's another thing to actually play through it and experience it and then interact with the culture. And have real stakes about, do you get this right? Do you get this wrong? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and kind of like mess with the, the complexities of that culture and what happens there, right? And, yeah. And play through it, right? So you're, if you're engaged, you're living in that culture, that's different from reading that culture. It's, it's sort of like learning a language in the United States and actually going to the country and learning the language with the people. So he said, let's, let's make it a book of adventures, but with setting material for each of the, the adventures. Um, and uh, that was what built out of that, that single call that was like an incredible call. I remember tweeting uh, afterwards, like, best day or something like that. Just kind of like wanting to remember this moment. Um, so that was the pitch. Jeremy and Wes said they would move forward with it and they would uh, work on convincing the rest of the, the Watsi team, the D&D team to, to greenlight it in like record time. Uh, it was maybe a month and a half. Jeremy said it is greenlight and let's move forward. So. Which is just miraculously fast for Watsi to do anything. They are they are not necessarily known for their speed um, and alacrity. I love the designers there and the writers on there are amazing folks but uh, I think the apparatus of the organization. It's a different corporate culture. Uh, it is. Alacrity was their dump stat. Yes. Very yes. right, yeah. <laughs> much. Very much so. So they moved fast. They took it seriously and and I thought my role would it be would be I was like hey I'll be a writer on this right like like I'm not going to, I didn't presume that I could be like a project lead. And Jeremy's like, that sounds great, but also you should be the project lead uh, with Wes. And Wes is like, yes, I, I'd love to be your co. Um, so that is how that started, um, that ball rolling. And genuinely um, treated like the co-project lead, like the vision and the inception and the creation, the whole the whole outline of that was, was mine, but obviously always in collaboration with Wes, um, especially with the, the moving parts and, the, and the, the mechanics and the uh, elements there. So one of the really challenging things about a multi-author book, even with many fewer multi-authors, <laughs> is <laughs> assembling your team and yeah. getting them together. So how did you go about that? You know, I think this this was a, 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 it dovetailed a lot with other work I've been doing in the games industry, which is really trying hard to elevate people of color into full time or um, you know lucrative as much as as much as sorry maybe that's the wrong <laughs> word but, but but at least like sustainable professions within the games industry and within tabletop. So I, I've been seeking for many years a lot of people of color to to you know support and connect them with writing opportunity, design opportunities. So I actually. 
my Rolodex was pretty large at that point. And then if I didn't know somebody, somebody knew somebody that like was on my list. Um, and so that team came together pretty quickly because of, I think, years of groundwork I'd been doing in advance. And was it a matter of in terms of selecting a given writer or designer, was it they've done a thing like this, they've done a uh, similarly inspired fantasy game, or was it just, I know that they really have a great setting and adventure in them, and I just want that perspective from that author? It's very much the second, and and I'll I'll, I'll tell a quick antidote. Um, Because of my full-time work, I've gotten to meet some interesting people, and one of them was the, the venture capital firm that wrote the first check to Reed Hastings for Netflix. And I had a chance to, to walk, <laughs> and, and now they're trying to make up for their sins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But they made a lot of money. Yeah, it's venture capitalism. So I'm not sure they're, what they're thinking on that side. But I asked him, like, how did you make that call? And he said, you're never investing in the idea. You're investing in the person. You believe in what they can do. And that was very much my situation with the writers. None of them had ever written for an official D&D book. Most of them hadn't really worked in this kind of... They'd done um, other indie stuff uh, tangentially, but like nothing in this, this realm. But I believed in them and I believed in their potential. And it was a gamble, a risk uh, to work with them. Uh, but it paid off well. Um, a number of them have gone on to write for... Uh, other D&D books afterwards or other successful projects. Now, developing emerging writers is a real challenge. There's a, a manual you can go to to learn how to do it, and the challenge is to help them up their game and deliver the best possible work in a way that is supportive and uh, it teaches them things that they can use to build a career, which is a whole point of what you're doing. So what tips would you give to other people uh, that you learned from doing this or from other previous projects? Yeah, I think the biggest one is, and I'm sure you both have said this and others have said it too, is write to spec, write to deadline. But, you know, I, I think any any lead will take somebody that's consistently good and on time over somebody that's brilliant but completely unreliable and um, very difficult to work with. Um, and for us, we were a very tight deadline. I'm well aware that you know D and D books. The, the, the team has been been open about it in the past that books get developed and then they get shelved. Um, so I knew that like we could be shelved if we did not fulfill our deadlines and we're not on schedule. So we created in advance. Wes and I um, and our team built out vision docs. We built out uh, all sorts of outlines and structures. We really front loaded it heavily because a lot of these um, writers were first time writers or new to writing for D and D. And I. I built out a very tight schedule and then did a lot of follow-up with the writers. But even the best of them said this was the extraordinarily difficult project. Um, you're, you're writing to a very specific spe- specification. You're working within very specific context. And there's high level of demand um, out of the final project. So they learned a tremendous out- amount out of it. Um, and one of them has gone on to becoming a senior game designer at D&D as a stepping stone. This was his first project and then after that he did a couple more and then he got hired full time. Um, a couple of others have written uh, more but they said all of that was helpful for their careers in tabletop. So this is sort of like, you know, special forces training. It, it is. You're thrown, you're, jumped in, uh, you're thrown in the deep end, really. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's very intense. 
the fun part of being a developer for me, which is why I ask these questions, Robin asked the grown-up questions, is <laughs> the part where you have this sort of general vision for what the project is going to look like, and then they bring you something that is insane or brilliant or ideally both that sort of recasts it, and then you have the hard question of, man, do I rework it or do I ask them to tone it down? Did that happen to you? Yeah. Was there, were there moments? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's some pretty intense pieces in the book. Um, and, and those are particularly around themes, right? Colonialism is one of them, and that's in Hemphun Zalen's piece. Um, you know, she, she, she really tackles with, uh, the, the, the legacy of colonialism within uh, the Philippines. And the big bad of that story, you know, not to give it, or that adventure, not to totally give it away, but like... Is William McKinley. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that would be great. Uh, but the, it, he has a lot of hit points. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, he's a he's a level boss. <laughs> is um is the fact that they're uh, the a victim of colonialism too, right? And so you're like, okay, I can go in and go and kill this thing, but also here's what's really happening here behind the scenes. And I was really moved reading that piece. Um, a couple of the others deal with you know the legacy of, of slavery or what it might be to to avoid slavery and what is what is the the black American experience in the South look like without slavery but with other complex challenges. And I was really blown away. They, they definitely pushed past what I expected. Now, um, obviously these are you know strong elements and if you're having a setting that means anything it's going to be rooted in experiences like that and situations like that. But the game is not, you know, the downers tour of uh, the multi-realms. It's fantasy action adventure role playing was there a, a need to balance that sort of tonal questions were there were there other asks in the vision document that said we're talking about serious things but also there are elves yeah absolutely and, and there's some really humorous pieces in there too so like Serena Marie's piece uh, the first piece in the book is is really comical and, and has a great um, sense of humor other pieces have, that are serious have comical elements or light hearted elements I think think you can um, explore uh, complex themes and still find levity and find joy and find humor. Um, and find adventure. And find adventure. Yeah, they're all, they're still all adventures fundamentally. I, I think it just treats the player as complex enough to deal with a wide variety of issues that it, that they have the maturity and the, and the ability to, to grasp new nuances. Because that's one of the things that pop culture does is it is a way that we can deal with things that are otherwise too stressful to approach in a way that that uh, allows us to kind of sidle into things. I, I guess the, the question I'm heading toward is how do you make that call between hitting the, the pop culture elements and hitting the more serious elements? Is there a, how do you advise uh, players to deal with that? that? GMs, writers? That's tough, right? It, it's, I mean, you know, when you say that, Robin, I think of like the, the miniseries um, on, on HBO, The Watchmen, right? I, I love The Watchmen and it, it's just a great um, dramatic series. It's a lot of fun. It's also pretty serious, but it has really ridiculous com comedic elements to it. And it hits all those tones and beats really well. I don't know if there's a way to tell somebody how to do it, except to tell... Um 
you know, you are not trying to lecture somebody, right? You, you are still trying to entertain. You're still trying to share a great story, a great experience around the table. It still should be fun for players to kind of, you know, eat some popcorn and throw some dice and joke around at the table. And if you can mix that with these serious elements and we go like, hey, cool, we can still do these things at the same time as tell the story. And it doesn't lose the, the beats. That's where it happens. And I think that's like trial and error and you're really like you're experimenting a little bit there so part of the premise is that uh, there's a, a new part of the ethereal plane I believe uh, so I, I guess we've been talking a lot of process stuff but for people who want to play this how did you go about deciding uh, what to add to the ever shifting uh, D&D mythos you know, I was very lucky. The team was very generous about giving me free reign there. Um, I, I wanted to figure out ways to link all of these different desperate cultures and not necessarily have them all in the same world because they were independent adventures and they should be able to. You should be able to lift up one of those adventures and, and drop it off in the Forgotten Realms or in Greyhawk or Dragonlands if you wanted to, right? You can just say you can fit these in um, in where it makes sense for you, right. but they can all be linked as well. So it was actually a pretty complex piece in terms of having to accomplish multiple different goals at the same time. So it can work as just its own standalone book. It can work as standalone adventures that are in your homebrew. It can work as connective tissue to establish D&D worlds. And that was tricky. So that was where the ethereal plane kind of came into place. And I wanted a hub location that we hadn't seen before um, that also just took a different beat. You know, uh, the Radiant Citadel was very much born out of the time that I was writing. It, which is to say, the pandemic, you know, some really complex uh, political issues, both in the United States and overseas, um, and uh, a lot of dread or a lot of uh, uncertainty and, and fear, I think. And, and some responses to that is to, to write very dark material, but the, the book also already had some pretty dark material. So I wanted the Radiant Citadel itself to be a, a kind of a beacon of light. And I kind of thought about it like almost a video game, like home base, where the players can come back and feel safe and regroup. I kind of always like that like home base in a video game. When you're going adventuring, you could still always go there and there be some NPCs to chat with and, and have a good time. Um, and that was where the Radiant Citadel kind of built up uh, out of. Um, and being linked in the, the ethereal plane was um, so sort of made sense at the time. Uh, it was a little unexplored. It was sort of uncharted in, in, in 5e lore. So that was a good place to put it. I also knew Spelljammer was, was being worked, so I knew that uh, the astral plane was not uh, going to make sense. Uh, or it was already off, it was off limits. <laughs> you had your choice of planes, but not the astral plane. Right. <laughs> um, so the book is out. It's, uh, you know, had, had an incredibly positive response. So looking back on it, what's the number one thing that surprised you that you learned putting this together? Deep respect for... Uh, for both of you and anybody doing this full time, it is a hell of a lot of work. I wasn't sure if my wife would stick with me by, by the end of it. She's like, I love you. I'm so proud of you're doing this. Uh, I never want you to do something like this again. It is killing you. It was very intense and very hard and very stressful. It was also very, very joyous at times. And I was moved to tears by reading pieces and just working with the authors. It was a deeply emotional and very personal piece for every single person who wrote, wrote it. You'll talk to Justice and he'll say, my sister's in there. You talk to Serena, she'll like, my grandmother's in there. Um, Mario will be like, my abuela is there, right? You know, they're, they're, 
this is a very personal book to all of us, and I think that was one of the most powerful things that came out of it for me. And um, I'm really grateful for it, and I'm really grateful for, for the response from people that, um, you know, I, I got a lot of messages from um, black and brown, um, you know, players who were said, this, they felt seen for the first time, and particularly in D and D, it just it, it connected to something that was very visceral for them, very moving, and they they just loved being part of it. To be part of, they felt like they were part of D and D, and that meant a lot. And one of the things that's intriguing to me, sort of moving way back, is that a lot of the you know found meaning in D and D comes out of individual play. Like the players are like, oh, now we have this memory yeah. built around this. But I mean, not counting Gary Gygax's original Greyhawk group, have you really seen that level of the designer's personality and personal history and personal involvement is part of it? Because you know, great designers, you know, are thinking, I'm going to make Dracula, not yeah. I'm going to make my own, you know, anger at my dad. Yeah. Right? There, it's, a, it's a different sort of, a, of an approach. And did you find that the work that you were putting together, fostering, helping to create, did that hit you different than, say, Ravenloft or something else that's really good, really powerful, really great play, but comes from, I want to say, maybe a slightly more distanced place yeah absolutely I mean this was ours all from the from the inception and I think that was the biggest thing right we had free reign and we could build as we wanted we had some parameters obviously but it hit us I think for all of the writers it hit them at their core um, for every single one of them they talked about talking to their parents and their their relatives and their uncles and aunts and they talked about uh, sitting around dining tables and sharing meals together food is a big element in this book and that's because a lot of these cultures rotate their societies or their their their, their gatherings around food um, and and festivals. There is a joke that there's so many festivals in the book, but that that is born out of the fact that a lot of these cultures, they're, they're, a lot of the moving pieces or how they come together as people are around festivals. So course, every, I mean, presenting banquets as central to fantasy goes back to you know yeah, Homer, yeah, right? I mean, absolutely. It's, it's the, one of the foundational building blocks of the art form, and it's weird that it, in, in retrospect, it's weird that it hasn't been a big part of, that, you know, D&D. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. You know, I think this was, it speaks to how people get together uh, and who we are. So for all of us, I mean, there is, there is you know, writers who are going through old family photos and albums and, and finding pieces of memorabilia from their, from their lives, from people that they didn't know that died, you know, decades before, that they brought into it. And so there's so much woven into this book that most players will never get, but, but maybe they'll feel it, right? They'll know something else is going on behind the scenes and they'll feel that magic that we put into it, which is, I think, our love. And it's book. almost strange to think that D&D can bear that emotional weight. I, I don't know. I, I mean, yes, and but also, like, as, a, as an immigrant kid coming here, um, D&D was my refuge for feeling very, very alone. And I know that's a lot of nerd kids will say the same thing, too. But in a different way for me, I, I think it just made me feel that I belonged in this country in a different way than I had felt before. Um, so I do think it can be. I just think that we maybe haven't seen it in the same form before. But I have a deep love for the game, and I, I'm, I'm really glad that we were able to make this book. And, and I... I 
yeah, I think that I think the game's capable of a lot more than maybe sometimes we we think it is, or we, we see its limitations. Well, yeah, I, I couldn't see a, a better possible uh, note to end on. Uh, so thanks so much for coming by, and I'm glad we finally got you on the show. Thanks so much, Rob, and thanks, Ken. Yeah, Appreciate you, it. You just had to produce a 15-person D and D book in unprecedented speed and quality <laughs> in order to get to, to finally condescend to be on our show. <laughs> no, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you both for Thanks. having me on. It, it, Thanks a lot. The Best of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Protect this podcast from fatal betrayal by joining such intriguing Patreon backers as Jake B. Merrick Shinkariel, Jan Zaleski, Chihiro Yamada, and Garrett Fitzgerald. The teletype screams out. The headlines rage. We've ripped it from the crime blotter. John Scheib, beloved Patreon backer, has a specific crime in mind, the theft of $200,000 in dimes, 2 million dimes from a Walmart parking lot in Philadelphia. And I he bet asks, that number of dimes is heavy, Ken. It is. It's darn heavy. It's five tons of dimes. What sort of crime makes pilfering five tons of dimes worth the trouble? <laughs> is there a numanistic and occult intersection beyond greed? Weird symbolism on the dime that makes it worth stealing the quantities that could cover the ceiling, floor, and walls of a special room? John having actually given the best idea that's going to come up in this segment. Good for you, John. Or just poor impulse control and 200,000 in coins wanders off. And that is the question that John Scheib poses us, and I suppose that this theft poses the world. Right. So I guess, first of all, in real life, Never rule out somebody being dumb. Yeah. Elmore Leonard is a documentarian, I yeah. feel like, is important knowledge. And possibly on meth. So yeah. there are not Elmore Leonard. certain He's not substances that may alter your judgment of what you can do with five tons of, of dimes. Yeah. So do we need to, uh, you want to give a bit more of the, the teletype? Uh, yeah. Part of the, the specific case is that it's April 12th of 2023. A tractor trailer has picked up a load of $750,000 in dimes you know, 7.5 million dimes, I guess. And they have picked it up from the Philadelphia Mint. It's all in pallets, 50,000 dimes per pallet. And then the guy's like, well, now I got to drive these dimes to Florida to be dumped off at the Federal Reserve in Miami. And he says, 
I don't want to drive to Florida all night. That's stupid. I'll just park my tractor trailer and go home and I'll get a fresh start in the morning. And apparently this and, is... And this is not weird. This is just standard practice. Yeah, well, standard practice may be pushing it, but it's not at all uncommon and people absolutely do this. But on the night of April 12th is the wrong time to have done it, at least in that Walmart parking lot, because six men in black clothing and gray hoodies, as determined from various surveillance cameras, broke into the back of the tractor trailer and had a terrible lock on it. They just used a bolt cutter and bang. They open it up and are briefly shocked and amazed to discover it being full of dimes. But, you know, nothing loath. They begin to try carrying the bags of dimes up, discover even a bag of dimes is super heavy. So they start busting open the bags to pour into smaller bags. They wind up stealing, recycling trash cans with wheels from area yards to load their dimes into. And off they go. They have a dark colored pickup and a white Chrysler 300, which is apparently enough to get five tons of dimes away from the location, but they leave lots of other dimes just scattered all over, including on the street in the direction of wherever their getaway was. Right. So possibly they knew it was from the mint and they thought it would be paper money. Yeah. Possibly they thought it was whatever stereo equipment and they opened it up and well, they'll still take the dimes. Yeah. There's been a lot of tractor trailer break-ins and thefts in Philadelphia. Uh, apparently more often those trucks are full of liquor or cigarettes or something that you can move easily. I guess there's no problem in moving dimes. It's yeah. just why <laughs> this, this case of dimes do you want it? It just fell off a truck. So yeah. that's the quotidian version. But of course we're here to talk about what a, a magical plot would entail. And for that, we need to look at what the, the magical properties of dimes are. And so U.S. dimes contain nickel alloy and copper. Uh, and when you look up what the mystical qualities of these metals are, you will notice that anything that can be sold in a new age mineral shop has qualities that uh, clear your mind and cleanse your spirit. They all do that. So, of course, Copper and nickel do as well. Well, it wouldn't be legal to sell them if they were harmful, Robin. The FDA right. would stop them. And whether they're useless is, is a whole other question. Yeah. So copper magnifies energy transfer. Makes sense. That's why you build wires out of it. Exactly. This is not completely uh, unrelated to its scientific properties. It gives you positivity, goodness, luck, and it rebalances your chakras because, of course, it does. Uh, nickel is strong. And here's, I think, where it starts to really get at the explanation of, of what's going on here is it extends into multiple dimensions and it's good for problem solving and information gathering. So it's, it's the gumshoe of metals, I guess, mm -hmm. and it encourages creativity. So the gumshoe of metals, like you say, I should mention that copper is also metal associated with the planet Venus. And so therefore uh, with the goddess Venus or Aphrodite. So. That's where your copper, you know, reaches up into heaven. And the specific alloy, cupronickel, was seen in Germany as a fairy cursed copper. And in fact, nickel is the name of a, a minor demon. And it's where we get old Nick, the name for the devil from. So because you couldn't melt the copper out of cupronickel, they said a fairy must have cursed this copper. And so that's why it was called copper with a demon in it or, you know, nickel. And then when the they finally isolated nickel in the late 18th century. It took forever. They just named it devil. So strong extends into multiple dimensions, problem solving, information gathering, and George's creativity, not dissimilar to the devil, just right. saying. And so the next question is, what happens when you put those things in something that has the denomination of 10, 10 cents? Mm -hmm. And so 10 has a 
of course, like any number, has a whole bunch of different mystical properties. And Ken, why don't you hit me with a couple of them, and then I'll talk about the one that I think is most uh, fruitful in this question. Okay. Well, the, the, there are 10 spheres of the Sephirot, and the 10th is Malkuth, the earthly kingdom. So if you are looking for a earthly domain power over the earth, that might be where you're going for. In Kabbalah, the value of 10 is the value for the words window and whisper in Hebrew. So if again, your nickel is extending into multiple dimensions, maybe that's the window. And then the whispering is again, demons or encouraging creativity. The Enochian glyph, Groth, has the Kabbalistic value of 10. It symbolizes Virgo and the hermit, uh, the hermit from the tarot, the Virgo constellation. And it is pronounced E because of course its name is Groth. So why wouldn't you pronounce it E? That's Enochian for you. It's messed up. It, you know, and again, there's lots and lots of things that there's 12 of, and you can just arbitrarily pick and say that's the 10th sign, but like the Zodiac goes in a circle. So picking Aries as the beginning is just literally putting your finger on a thing. So Sagittarius, I don't think personally has an awful lot to do with this situation, Robin. Right. So to explain what's going on here, I think what we have to focus on is the fact that the Pythagoreans recognize the number 10 as the number of counter-Earth. This, of course, is the 10th planet, the planet that can never be observed from Earth because it tracks our orbit on the other side exactly in progress with it. So it exists, but we can never observe it. Now, some people say that the counter-Earth was just Aristotle having a joke at the Pythagoreans' expense, who notoriously could not take a joke. But no. we in the Making Stuff Up field know that there is a whole other world that is a parallel version of our world Probably, I would say, you know, pretty close, not even necessarily as different as a different timeline uh, that you can never get to because not only is it not observable from Earth, but because it is a counter Earth, it has never been observed due to its mystical anti properties by astronomers. But I think our thieves here wanted to get to counter Earth. They may feel that they've uh, had a, a bad life here. For example, they're reduced to dime theft and they might want to travel to counter Earth bump off their unsuspecting counterparts who no doubt are doing something more successfully there, or they just want to set up a trans-reality corridor that takes advantage of uh, Nichols dimensional extension property. Because I think, you know, the counter-Earth, the way it's described, has to also be in an alternate dimension as well as an alternate space. Mm. So this uh, room that John talks about of being lined with dimes uh, presumably has to be the, the room, the transport room that allows people to uh, move to counter-Earth from our Earth, whether they have a way back or not, or it's a one-way trip, I think this is where the player characters come in because they are pursuing someone who's used this corridor. Now, it may just be that the dime thieves are just making money, helping fugitives escape our Earth and go to counter-Earth, and they're still here making sweet bank, charging people admission to go to another Earth. More than a dime. But the player characters may have very good reason to go through that chamber in order to bring someone back. Yeah, they, they could be bounty hunters or the person who fled could be, you know, their, you know, uh, someone very close to them and they want to find out what happened and they're sort of solving the mystery in that way. I should also note that the actual magical American dime was the one before the FDR dime, the Mercury dime, they called. It's actually supposedly not Mercury. It's the goddess Liberty, but she has a winged cap indicating that she believes in freedom of thought but it's Mercury. It's the god Mercury. And Mercury, of course, is the god of travelers and the god of language, the god of money, 
It's very handy. So Mercury is somehow sort of sneaking around present in all of this. And of course, Counter-Earth is... Symbolically and mythically suffused existing dimes that no longer have Mercury on them. Right. And uh, the back of the, the dime is a torch between two branches, olive and oak. So the torch is obviously the portal and the two branches are the two Earths, the olive earth and the oak earth. And I think that if the assumption is that the counter earth is the better one that you want to go to, then that must be the olive world, the world of Athena and the oak is our world, the world of Zeus. And I think that the, the notion that the dime exists as this portal is, is pretty much spelled out on the back. I don't think that that's any question. And you found a folk belief that says that finding a dime is getting a communication from the beloved dead. Yeah. Because it's sort of like your grandma thinks a dime is still worth something now that she's a ghost. Yeah. And that (laughs) also suggests that perhaps people are going to the counter-earth to bring back people who are dead here, Mm -hmm. but did not meet unfortunate death there. And and again, perhaps disrupt things by uh, bringing them back. So you can, whether they're trying to get uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan back or some political figure who died too young and uh, bring them back to our world. That could be another, or just uh, their own beloved uh, grandma or sister or whatever. Right. And then of course, counter earth is not another earth. It is a counter earth. It has its own vibration. And I would think that once you start to bring, you know, even the kindest, uh, gentlest, most charming grandmother back, her presence on earth will begin to set up counter-Earth vibrations and Mm -hmm. uh, threaten the integrity of both worlds. So it may be that the scenario is to find her and get her back to counter-Earth before both of them vibrate uh, into nothingness. Yeah, the people from counter-Earth on our Earth trail sort of improbability and and mercurial behavior with them, trickery and, and Fordian phenomena. And even though they are, as you say, the kindest, best grandmothers, All around them, suddenly there's tulpas and poltergeists and stuff happening, and it's just, it's untenable, frankly, in the long run. Well, now that we've given your player characters an assignment, it's time for us to uh, head on out of uh, this segment and into the next one, where perhaps another weird alternate series of events might unfold. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation X! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray, plausibly deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlath tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing.
It's time to enter that most ill-defined of huts, the hut that sits on the border between crankism, weird history, sometimes treasures that people have left out in the woods. We're really not sure how to orient ourselves here until we look out the window and see the alien big cat screaming on the moor, and we look over into the corner where the gray alien and the Nordic alien are hanging out drinking kombucha, and this time they're sitting up attentively, signaling that once more we're going to talk about UFOs and aliens because they seem to be in the news a lot, because I, I guess credulous people can are a renewable resource. Yes. And this time around, it turns out that there were enough credulous people in the Mexican Congress to invite a guy named Jaime Massan to show them his alien mummies. And that, I think, requires a bit of a deep background. And who should we ask for deep background on an obvious charlatan like Jaime Massan? Then you can. Then me. Exactly. Jaime Massan is about 70 years old. He began as a reporter for a real news organization in the 70s. Then he moved into being a TV reporter. Then he became a TV personality. And since 2014, he has hosted a YouTube conspiracy channel with close to a million subscribers. Right. He went from being Geraldo to Art Bell, right. basically. Or, yeah, he, he went from Geraldo to Geraldo to Art Bell. I mean, I, yeah. I feel like there's a middle Geraldo that he... Yeah, I was going to uh, do a 3.1. Oh, Geraldo's already two, two He's already two of, of those points. And he has hosted a TV show on Azteca TV, which I believe is a real network in Mexico, called Third Millennium since uh, apparently 2018. That's the first time I was able to find it, or Tercio Milenio, as it is called. But he has a history of not just going to interview credulous dupes and hucksters, but also of sort of becoming one himself. And it's that fine line where the defenders of Mosan who are out there say he just wants to find the truth too much. Poor guy. <laughs> too much that he's made a bunch of fake and aliens. Everyone else, including, including real honest to God, UFO cultists and dupes and goofballs are like, he's ruining it for everyone. Stop it. He's terrible. If we can't call this guy out, it'll make the whole field of ufology look dumb, which I guess is correct. So amongst his previous hits, are the Metapec creature, which was supposed to be a small, hideous cryptid that turned out to be a skinned marmoset. He did that in 2007. Uh, he had a demon fairy in 2016 that turned out to be a bat corpse manipulated with wooden sticks. He sold that for 10 grand. So that's, you know, the sort of the uh, Ripley's believe it or not, I guess, except for you begin by lying and then you sell the the thing is, you know, oh, what these people will believe. A little P.T. Barnum moment, I guess, if I want to put the best possible face on it. Yeah, basically, this is sort of Fiji mermaid. Exactly. And then his latest uh, Fiji mermaid is the three-fingered alien mummies that were supposedly found near the Nazca lines. And the story sort of shifts around. In one case, he bought them off of mummy smugglers. In another case, he knows a guy who knows a guy. But in 2017... He hooked up with a self-promoting French quasi-archaeologist, adventurer type, named Thierry Jamin, who is most famous for finding a supposed chamber beneath the main building at Machu Picchu that the Peruvian government says, we're not looking at your stupid chamber. And he's like, what are they covering up? Uh-huh. But anyway, Thierry Jamin and Jaime Mossan obviously recognized kindred spirits across a crowded room. They hooked up for something called the Alien Project to crowdfund the DNA and other testing of their mummies. 
uh, and it raised forty-two grand, which I suppose is not bad. It's not great by role-playing Kickstarter standards. You could put out a nice little source book for that. <laughs> no, I mean I have raised more. I grant you, but still, you know, it's it's a good year's work for a goofball. And if you're, you know, spending it in Peru, I, I assume it goes farther. Anyway, they said that they took it to the National Autonomous University of Mexico and that the tests came back and said that 30% of its DNA was alien and that the carbon 14 dates said it was a thousand years old. And it's very exciting. But the university actually says, uh, no, we said nothing of the kind, but we did sign a document that says we can't say what the carbon 14 dates said. So... There we are. Well, so there's an update to that. Yeah. Because the Reuters very recently in the past couple of weeks went to Masan and said, well, why don't you show me the results and we'll take your results that you got from UNAM and show it to UNAM and have them comment on it. And Masan did not quickly enough come up with a reason not to do that. So indeed, the confidentiality agreement has been breached. And so they went to Julieta Fiera of the uh, of the UNAM Astronomy Institute, who was able to then reveal what was in those documents. And, and guess what? They're not saying there's alien DNA at all. Mm -hmm. They're saying that they are brain and skin tissues from different mummies who died at different times. Now, Masson is now backtracking kind of, sort of, and saying that that was not a sample of the the two small mummies that he presented to the Mexican Congress, who, by the way, are named Clara and Mauricio, but in fact, uh, was a sample from Victoria, who is an earlier mummy, possibly from the same Nazca find. So, so even though he has a guy named Jose de Jesus uh, Yalis Benitez, who's uh, the director of the Health Sciences Research Institute of the Secretary of the Navy, which I guess, Secretary of the Navy, I guess that makes you an expert on aliens. Well, I mean, if you're, if, if, if we heard, Robin, that someone at uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital had done tests on aliens, we would, well, we would, we still wouldn't buy it, but it would seem, I, I assume that they have a naval hospital in Mexico. They have a Navy. They have doctors. Yeah. They need both. Right. So Masson has this guy with credentials who mm -hmm. is still saying that it's alien DNA, but now right. the, uh, the jig is up on UNAM having said that it was right. alien DNA. So anyway, the some of the mummies that he made for the alien project were big, and some of them were little. The big mummies were probably made by a guy named Luis Quispe, who was a YouTuber whose specialty is going on YouTube and saying, here's how to make a pretend alien mummy. So he probably used genuine pre-Columbian remains. That has gotten them in a great deal of trouble, as we'll talk to a bit. And maybe a uh, smushed Yama skull is part of the um, the mummies in the big ones. And then they're all covered in plaster. The smaller mummies are made of human and animal bones stitched together with uh, sinew or with something like that. And then covered up in fake skin and then sort of sprayed with drywall fundamentally. So the little mummies got unveiled because the United States Congress, uh, having solved all other problems in America, did a public hearing on UFOs. And Mexico's Congress was like, well, we're a real Congress. We should have a UFO hearing. And Mossan is pals with the former president of the Chamber of Deputies, which is the Mexican House of Representatives, basically. Again, I'm Sergio Gutierrez Luna. Luna is of the same party as the president of Mexico, President AMLO. And that's the left populist Morena party, in case anyone is keeping track. And so one begins to maybe understand how a guy who is a government bureaucrat serving at the pleasure of the president comes out and says, yep, those are real mummies. All right. All right. Anyway, the little mummies get unveiled and uh, brouhaha was set off. 
the current version of the story for the Congress is that they were found in a diatomaceous earth mine in Cusco near the Nazca lines, and they have eggs inside of one of them. I assume that would be Clara, and they both have osmium implants because they've got cybernetics buried right. in their little mummy bodies. And, and what is a diatomaceous earth mine? A diatomaceous earth mine is fossilized algae, and then the fossilized algae becomes this super soft super friable earth that you can use for various industrial processes like polishing and stuff. So you go and you dig up these fossilized algae beds and in the diatomaceous earth mine, apparently if you, you know, have wished on a YouTube forger, then you find mummies as well. Right. So they must be, they must have crash landed a long, long time ago in order to be with fossilized algae. Well, or, you know, their crashed ship, because in fairness into the to Demosan, he does not say he found a crashed ship. He just says he found mummies. So maybe they landed, you know, however long ago. Hung around for decades. At the Nazca lines, and then they yeah. went off into the diatomaceous earth because they needed it to repair their ship or something. And, you know, they, they caught the sniffles, as aliens will, and fell over and fell in the mine and died. Right. Now, uh, speaking of, I guess we have a bit of a misuse of human remains theme going on this episode. (laughs) Sort of do. Yeah. It turns out that using pre-Columbian remains for your art project is uh, bad and illegal. Yeah, it it certainly is in Peru. Which Yes, I I think it's probably elsewhere as well, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but certainly in Peru where the culture minister, Leslie Ortega, has wondered aloud how pre-Hispanic objects were uh, found and, and then smuggled out of Peru. And in fact, Masan's backstory even says they were smuggled, mm-hmm. which is something you maybe don't want to say as part of your backstory for your mummies. Well, certainly not if you don't want to be deposed by the Peruvian government. Yeah. So, in fact, criminal charges have been filed. So, that's uh, an object lesson in uh, before you seek uh, publicity for your uh, hoax ask yourself whether your square-up story for your hoax is not itself <laughs> an admission of a felony to serious crimes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, uh, it's a big deal. We actually haven't done the Nazca lines, Robin, the Nazca lines are super cool. Maybe another episode. And then this is basically a bigger, louder version of the Roswell alien hoax. Instead of just doing it on a garbage TV special, which I guess is his sort of bread and butter. He has done Roswell hoaxes, by the way, he's not, he's not, a nationalist UFO nonsense guy. He also covers our American UFOs. He needs material if he's got a regular show. But he's doing it in sort of a a, a bigger, louder public sphere because, you know, a guy with a million YouTube subscribers is a guy who knows social media and he knows what's going to blow up. He knows what's going to go viral. And one assumes he thinks with all of the new subscribers I make and all the new YouTube money I'm going to get, I can pay off if I get fined by the Peruvian government, even if it gets to that level. It's not going to be a problem. This is going to make crowdfunding look like chump change because he's going to be able to monetize all of his videos about this nonsense because, you know, YouTube, you know, demonetizes plenty of things arbitrarily, but I think UFOs are a pretty safe harbor. So it's another clout play. Yeah, basically. What your modern charlatan is up to. So in esoterrorist terms, of course, hoaxes bring real things into the world from the outer dark. And so this could all be about seeding uh, the ground for uh, rips in the fabric of uh, reality of uh, tears in the membrane to appear near the Nazca lines or uh, in Mexican Congress. And the things that come through might initially look like the little mummies, except, of course, they'd be alive and they wouldn't really be 
well, I guess you could call them aliens, but they're also, yeah. you know, hideous demons who mean us no good. And uh, does this go back far enough that you could sort of backdate it into Fall of Delta Green? I think you can do um, this guy himself begins his career in 1970. So he's a little post Fall of Delta Green, but you can probably have a similar sort of blow up where someone finds and builds mummies. That's old school. And you can certainly do it in regular fall of green as our uh, sponsors from art dream would uh, love you to do. Right. Regular Delta green can absolutely be about this. And the question is, you know, when they, you know, get Mosan and they sweat him, it's like, no, he genuinely believes this. He does have a story that these mummies came to him. And when you investigate, it's like, well, these mummies are probably hoaxes, but that diatomaceous, Earth mine is actually near a Miko outpost in the Andes because we know from August Erleth that the Andes are full of Cthulhu worshippers. Uh, Viracocha is a Cthulhu uh, mask. There's deep ones in Lake Titicaca. All manner of horrible Cthulhu monsters live up in the Andes. So a uh, regular Delta Green can definitely be wondering what on earth the Migo are up to, and the Migo themselves may be wondering what on earth are the humans up to, and it is an innocent hoax that as it angers Peru, imagine what it does to the Migo who are like, that's where our osmium went <laughs> and are now uh, on the rampage. Right. And the eggs put inside the mummy could be a Migo MacGuffin that they're anxious to get back. Right. So that could yeah. leave a trail of fungally distressed bodies uh, across Mexico City. Yeah. I, I, I feel like the, the Ezoterra is the sort of the, the low hanging fruit one because it is so obviously about, you know, discontinuity and belief versus unreality, the big themes. But I feel like, you know, Huckster has fake mummies, turns out to be in trouble is a classic story for a reason. Right. Well, with a dot put on a classic story, it's time to declare this podcast episode victorious. And if you wait for a mere week, however, another equally victorious podcast episode will come your way. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast in plaster and llama skulls by joining such ultra-reliable backers as... Hyperlexic. James Kiley. John Buckley. Peter Darby. And Trung Boy. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin and merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Present the gray alien point of view with our latest design. Nope, still not us. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.camp. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. 